Welcome to the sixth season of the Sharp End Podcast. I'm Ashley, the creator and producer of this show, and I hope you like the new theme music. The new theme music is thanks to my good friend, Evan, at the Fernline Podcast. He wrote this music for me, and I really hope that you like it. Evan also built my new website. Check out my new website at thesharpendpodcast.com and make sure that you check out Evan's podcast at thefernline.com. I'd also like to thank Dustin at Podboarder. He's been working with me to take this show to the next level, and I'm really, really thankful for his support and encouragement as I lift this show up and make it better for you. Did you know that January is National CBD Month? I've spent some time learning more about CBD and how to integrate it into my daily life thanks to some friends at Assesso Hemp. Assesso uses the restorative power of plants to create highly targeted products with lines that support wellness, calming, and soothing. I've been using their topical bombs. They have heat, cool, and soothing for aches and injuries, and the soothing blend of essential oils and hemp have really helped alleviate the pain. I recently pulled my hamstring, getting into a complicated pose on my aerial silks, and I am a 100% believer of this stuff. Check out how CBD can support your wellness routine with code SHARPEND for 25% off site-wide at assessohemp.com. This podcast is also supported by Desert Mountain Medicine and the American Alpine Club. So I'm pretty excited about this episode. My friend Steve Smith at Experiential Consulting turned the tables on me and he interviewed me. Let me know what you think about this episode by messaging me at the underscore sharp underscore end underscore podcast on Instagram. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the Sharp End Podcast. I am your guest host, Steve Smith, and the tables are turned for this this month's episode. Tonight, we will be speaking with Ashley, who has... (laughs) She has helped so many people tell their stories, and we've all benefited from learning those lessons. And uh, tonight, I have the honor of interviewing Ashley about some of her own stories from her experience and see what lessons we can learn. Uh, I was a guest on The Sharp End back in episode 25, which was the Asgard Pass glissading incident uh, that some of you may recall. And I was fortunate enough to survive that incident and be invited uh, on the show to talk about my lessons from that. And um, when I'm not glissading, I'm a risk management consultant uh, working out of Seattle, Washington. I work at Experiential Consulting. And we uh, deliver risk management uh, support for outdoor and experiential education programs around the country. So uh, this uh, idea of learning from our lessons is a lot of what I do all the time. And I'm really excited and honored to be speaking with you tonight, Ashley. Right. What better role and uh, what better company to own and to work for? And then you have this awesome opportunity to, for I, I have this op- awesome opportunity to learn from you because this is what you do. And hmm. so this is great. Well, it works out very nicely. And I'm uh, just really excited to see what sort of stories and lessons you, you have to share with us all tonight, Ashley. So, you know, you've helped so many people learn from, from you know, talking through their incidents and near misses over the years. And I'm curious if you might have a story or two of your own uh, that stands out for you that might that you'd like to share with the listeners. Um, oof. Yeah. So first off, uh, thanks for, uh, 
for interviewing me and um, coming up with this awesome idea. I know we kind of, we've kind of talked about this for a few months and I am pretty nervous and now I know how all my interviewees feel. So that's good for me to be sitting here in this position. Um, I do have a few stories to share. I've been in the outdoor industry um, for 15 years. This is what I went to college for. I graduated with an outdoor leadership degree uh, from Sheldon Jackson College in Sitka, Alaska, which is on Baranoff Island. And I'm actually the last graduating class from Sheldon Jackson because they went bankrupt my senior year uh, and then moved me to Juneau. So that's where I finished. I finished at University of Alaska Southeast in Juneau my senior year. Uh, and I graduated with an outdoor leadership degree. And so, and I went to, I went to college when I was 17 years old, so super young and graduated when I was 21. So I've been doing this since I was 17, which is pretty cool to say. Um, and yes, I've got a, a handful of oopses <laughs> that I'm happy to share. And, you know, I did start off, um, I was vulnerable and shared, um, the carbon monoxide episode number 47. I had my own personal experience with carbon monoxide on the, on the Valdez glacier where me and two of my friends were hanging out in an Arctic oven tent up on the third bench of the Valdez glacier here in Alaska. And we were stormed in and we continued to dig and dig and dig our tent out. And boy, you, it was a full on digging mission. You, you couldn't stop digging. And we, this Arctic oven tent, they have breathable walls. So you're, it's, they're supposed to breathe fairly well. So you, uh, you won't get carbon monoxide poisoning, but turns out we all three did. And luckily one of the three of us, his name was Dorian. He went outside to get a breath of fresh air and realized what was happening to us and said, Hey guys, you need to come out of the tent right now. We're getting carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and we said, no, we're, we're fine. Oh, we're just going to take a little nap. <laughs> and he said, no, come outside right now. And so we did. And sure enough, we, we were just, uh, we were huffing and puffing and we felt dizzy and lightheaded and kind of lethargic. And that was, that was a trip. I remember that episode, uh, and definitely feel like that was a quite a close call that you had. What do you remember as some of the key lessons from that episode? Um, to keep, you know, keep your vestibule open when you're cooking. We, we had been doing a lot of cooking inside that tent, but we thought we were okay because it was an Arctic oven and that's what we thought those tents were built for. But no, you, you need to keep your vestibule, your vestibule open. You need to keep constant airflow through the, the tent. So, uh, you don't have that carbon monoxide buildup. That's uh, definitely a lot of technical lessons coming out of that episode and some things that people can take away and do differently for themselves in the future. That was one that you did share uh, with us in the past. Let's dig a little deeper and think about no. <laughs> some, maybe some other near misses that you had or other close calls or even actual incidents uh, that you haven't shared with us yet. Okay. A couple of years ago, I was in Haines, Alaska. And I snow machined, okay, I think people that live in the States in the lower 48 call it snowmobile. We, sure. In Alaska, we call them sleds. But anyway, um, I went out to go find this zone that's never been skied before in Alaska, Canada. Uh, 
And I had a USGS topo map that I laminated with packaging tape. And I rolled this map up into my snowboard boot for the drive to the drop zone, which was next to the river that we had to initially cross right out of the gate. Uh, we had to cross two river flows right out of the gate to get uh, across the river to go on this mission. And there were a handful of people there that were kind of sending us off. And those people were helping to unload the truck and the sleds. So long story short, my boots that were in the truck that had the map rolled up into the boot ended up down by the river with no map in it. And I didn't, it didn't occur to me until after we'd snow machined off into the sunset and we were camping the first night uh, because I had rolled it in there to prompt me to pull it out and put it in my pocket, but I didn't, I didn't bring my boots down to the riverbed. So I didn't realize that it had fallen out. So we were only maybe about four hours into a multi-day expedition trying to find this, this, uh, this zone, but I didn't want to turn back for, for the map. And we had already crossed multiple rivers on the sleds and had navigated through some pretty gnarly crevasses just to get where we were at. And I did have my Gaia on my phone. My phone was charged. I had the free version of Gaia cause I'm, well, I'm as dirtbag as they come, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I, anyway, I used, I used Gaia to get us there to this zone. It was, th- it was three days later that we got, we found this, that we found this place that I was looking for. Um, and it was, and we got to this zone that that's never been skied before. It's about 70 miles back in there. And the reason why I bring this up is because there's learning in there to be shared, right? So bring, bring a map people and don't even, I mean, plant, I mean, double check that you have your map because I, I had printed off this map or I got this map from USPS or USGS. I had laminated it. I had rolled it up into my boot and I had, I thought I brought it, but I, I didn't bring it. It fell out of my boot or something and bring a hard copy because my phone was dying out there on the glacier. And again, I'm as dirtbag as they come. So I didn't have any fancy way of charging my phone out in the glacier. I didn't have one of those solar chargers. I didn't have an ex- uh, external battery type system. And if we got lost or if my buddy got hurt, we would have been hard pressed to find our way off that ice field. The point is, is bring a map, double check that you have it, bring a hard copy and don't rely on these, these, uh, technical devices, these, these cell phone devices to, to lead the way because they could die. I think it's a really interesting story because your plan a was the hard copy. Mm-hmm. And your digital <laughs> device was the backup. And I think that it's mm-hmm. so often these days that we see exactly the opposite, where folks might wander out into the wilderness completely reliant on their phone or on Gaia or whatever, mm-hmm. and have have not even thought about the need to have a hard copy to begin with. So your story is notable to me in, in that way. Um, what are some other key pieces that you think might have contributed to that particular incident? Or near, it's not even an incident, but that story. We were 70 plus miles back on an ice field. <laughs> and so, you know, I think it's just, it's so easy to get lost out there. Everything looks the same. Everything's white. So if we, if we didn't have each other, if we didn't have ideas to bounce off of each other, if I didn't have memorized, you know, stared so long at my phone, at my digital copy of my map on my phone on that Gaia, I don't know if we would have been able to find our way off if, if my phone died. I think too, when we were unloading the truck at the, at the riverbed, I think 
I should have just paused. I mean, we did ride off into the sunset. I think we left around 7 p.m. at night for this trip. It was in the springtime, so it was still it was still light out, but it wasn't the best time to leave. And I think if we had given ourselves an left at appropriate time, I would have been able to sort of sift through everything, pulled everything out of the truck myself and had gone through things much more organized as I normally would have if I didn't feel so rushed. That's an interesting one because you had used this strategy of sticking that rolled up map in your boot intentionally to trigger to yourself how important that map was, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and to remind yourself, you know, to make sure that you had put it in a safe place and all that. And it was just an interesting part of the story to me uh, that there was just unintended, uh, unexpected dominoes, you know, there that contributed to you not um, having the the hard copy that that you had planned to rely on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of devices, so my buddy had the sat phone, and I had asked him, "Hey, you have the sat phone, correct?" And he said, "Yes, I have the sat phone." And I said, "Is it charged?" And he said, "Yes, it's charged." And I said, "Do you have the spare battery?" And he said, "Yes, I have the spare battery." But I didn't look to make sure he had these things. I just took his word for it. So come to find out on day two, we need, we needed to use that sat phone to call the crew and let them know that, let them know our lat long and let them know what we're finding and sort of give, give the crew back at base sort of an update of our findings of this zone. And we had one bar of battery on the sat phone. Wow. And I said, Hey, Oh, where's the second battery? And he said, I forgot it. Oh no. So I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, we have no hard copy of a map. My phone's going to die. You have the sat phone with one battery left and no spare battery. And we are out here three days, 70 miles out on an ice field with just the two of us on snow machines. Anything can go wrong. And I'm just thinking to myself, what the heck, Ashley, you know better than this. I think it's an amazing story about the margins the little margins that we try to build in to give ourselves redundancy, backups, you know, some ability to absorb these unexpected things. And the margins that you were planning to have or that you would have drawn up, you know, in a perfect world were just not there for you. So what were some of the positive things that did help you though? So you you, you had all that list of things that were going wrong and those challenges and those unexpected things. What were some of the things that actually allowed your team to persevere and make it out of that situation? Oh, humor. <laughs> <laughs> Say more about that. Well, for instance, the first night we camped, set up the tent, we camped under the stars and the Northern lights were just ripping above us. And it was, it was so quiet that night that you could actually hear the Northern lights. It was incredible. Well, the next morning we wake up and we pack up the tent and a tent pole goes sliding down the glacier and almost falls into a crevasse. And so my buddy runs and penguins dives and grabs this pole before it falls into a crevasse. And he says, oh, I caught the pole, which was great. Except that that night we went to go erect the tent again. And there was a a major pole that was missing and the pole that kind of creates that holds the body of the of the tent up. But luckily I've been, I worked for Howard Bound for nine years. I've been in the outdoor industry for a long time. So I can, I can set up a tent 
without, you know, if you, if you take one pole away from me, I can still set up a tent and it can still be sort of semi, uh, semi holded shape. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, there's just humor in that, you know, it's okay. We is our, it's day two of our trip. We're missing a tent pole. We have one battery of sat phone life. We don't have a hard copy of a map. I mean, we could have been, you know, choking each other out at this point, but we weren't, we were just, we just found humor in it and, and just try to, you know, keep on keeping on paid, paid close attention to our surroundings and did a lot of uh, micro navigation where we could move around crevasses and we just, we just stayed really safe and we just stayed really in tune with each other. And we, we communicated really well together. And I think that's what saved us was just good communication and good humor. That is a great reminder for people about the effect that your mindset and that your sort of your psychological approach to challenge can really make such a fundamental difference, right? In whether mm-hmm. you panic, whether you stay in that sort of fight or flight mode, or whether you're able to shift yourself upshift back into more of an intellectual mode, or the ability to think strategically, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think that's that that reminder about humor and communication and being on the same page, you know, with your partner or your 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 team can really be the difference between groups that end up with some of the same challenges you had, but making much worse decisions or you know being maybe overcome by by the challenges that they've got. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that's a wonderful um, reminder for folks uh, and maybe a little counterintuitive for people too, right? If your listeners are anything like me, they're going to want me to ask, can you tell us what the Northern Lights sound like? Yeah, that's a really good question. They, it's really incredible. They kind of crackle. I I think that's the best way that I can describe them. Wow, that's wonderful. Well, may, may we all be so fortunate as to someday get to not only see, but hear the Northern Lights as well. So we'll have to keep an eye out, keep an ear out and an eye out for that in the future. Yeah, come on up to Alaska and visit and I'll show you and I'll have you listen. You got a deal. I'll do it. <laughs> it sounds fabulous. Yeah. So tell me about some other other experiences. You've you've had a, you know, you started as you said, you started in college at 17. You've got a degree in outdoor uh, leadership and education. You've got your outward bound background. You've had a lot of experiences in the backcountry of your own and with probably groups that you're working with or helping others sort of work their way through things. So let's keep going. Tell me about some other experiences you've had that stand out for you. Okay. I think uh, one that I, I want to men- make sure I mention is going out solo at, and, you know, being a, being a single woman and going out solo a lot. Um, Cause I don't have a partner and I am sort of like, I'm sort of this lone wolf, I think. I try and get partners to go out with me in the mountains, but people have jobs or people, I don't know. It's, it's tough for me to find partners to go in the mountains with. And so I just usually go by myself and there's a lot of taboo behind that. I think, okay, well, Ashley, you're a woman and you're going to go out by yourself. And is that safe? And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it can be just as safe to go out by myself, you know, than going out with a partner. And sometimes I'm in charge of my own decisions and I can, I can rely on myself, you know, and, but 
I struggle with it because it sure would be nice to to have a partner that I trust and I can communicate with and that can push me outside of my comfort zone and I can do the same for them. Uh, so I think going out with myself for the most part, I think it's important to tell somebody where I'm going, which I don't really do a very good job at. And, Mm -hmm. and I, and I own that. I really don't do a very good job at that. I, I just do my own thing. Um, my sister, Crystal, she, she gets, she'll call me or she'll message me and, and she'll say, Hey, what are you doing? And I'll say, I'm climbing a mountain. And she, you know, she, she said, who knows where you are? And I say, you do, <laughs> you know, you do now. Um, but she doesn't like that. And she's called me out on it quite a bit. So she made me turn on my location settings on my cell phone. So, so I, sh- I can share my location settings with her all the time. So now she knows where I am all the time because my location settings on my cell phone, just tell her so she can look me up and I don't really know how it works on your phone, but she can look me up and see where I am. So now she'll look me up and say, Hey, what are you doing? I see you're in the middle of a river. I, this was two weeks ago. And I said, yeah, I'm actually ice skating up the rabbit slough on the Palmer Hay Flats here. Uh, so I, yeah, I am in the middle of a river, but it's a frozen river and I'm, I'm ice skating. And she says, well, who are you with? Oh, I'm by myself. Well, why are you by yourself? You're always by yourself. And who knows where you are? Well, you do now because you have location settings on crystal. And anyway, I think she's really challenging me to be more intentional about telling people where I am and what I'm doing and what I'm going to be back and having a plan. Because I, you know, when I worked for the hour bound school, I made my students make plans and tell me where they were going and how long it would take them to get there and have a backup plan, a contingency plan. I, I had my students do that all the time. So why, why shouldn't I do that? You know, because my life is just as important as my students' lives, but I still never take initiative to actually make a plan and let people know what I'm doing and where I'm going. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really classic one where it's the do as I say, not as I do kind of <laughs> Right. <laughs> piece that I think many of us can slip into that. And intellectually, of course, you can understand the reasoning to have a plan. And it's even, you know, it's I'm sure it's even been, you know, one of the lessons learned from the sharp end in the past is the importance of letting people know where you're going and stuff like that. But it, we don't always apply those to ourselves. And I'm wondering, um, it's good, you know, that your sister is is kind of giving you a hard time about that. And you know, sort of trying to be a good influence. But I'm wondering, you know, what is it about outdoor folks where we can we can know something is the right thing to do, but we just don't always apply that, you know, to ourselves when the rubber meets the road. I'm I'm curious why why you think that might be. Well, I'm I'm not an expert, but honestly, based on my experience doing nearly 60 interviews on the sharp end. Uh, with people who have been in accidents, the major commonality really is complacency. And I honestly think for me personally, I feel like I'm invincible. I really do feel like I'm invincible. Same with COVID. I I wear a mask and I wash my hands with soap and water and I have hand sanitizer in my pocket when I go in and out of stores, but I, but I still don't believe it can happen to me. I still think I'm invincible. Mm-hmm. Same with accidents and and telling people where I'm going or when I go cl- rock climbing and I tie into a bowling because that's what I tie into. Uh, I mean, 
I just, I, I do these things. I navigate the world a little bit on edge because I, I sort of always flirt with this edge that I'm looking for. And, and I don't think that I can get hurt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If one of your outward bound students was coming to you and saying something like that, you know, and expressing that kind of feeling of, yeah, I understand that we're supposed to keep both hands on the belay or now I understand we're supposed to wear helmets at this site, but you know, I'm just feeling really pretty, pretty comfortable here. You know, what would be, what would your instructor voice say to the student in that situation? I would say, you know, you could do whatever it is. You can make your own choices when you're not in an institutional setting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's probably what I would say. <laughs> you know, just, just like I was told at our bound when I, when I showed up at Hour Bound, I had been climbing for four years prior to starting to work for the Hour Bound School, and I was tying into a bowlin. That's that's how I was taught to climb was tying into a bowlin. And when I showed up at the Hour Bound School, I tied into a bowlin, and they all stared at me. They all rubbernecked and said, "What are you doing? <laughs> Who do you think you are? This is an institutional setting. We tie in with a figure eight, and we do not do bowlins here." And I sort of you know, I got my wrist slapped. And, but ever since then, I always tied into a figure eight at a, in an institutional setting. And on my own time, I would still tie into a bowling. And I, I just, I don't know why I, I do that. If it's a little resistance to an institutional setting, I'm not really sure, but I would probably tell my students the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think it, your story there kind of brings up uh, the difference in risk tolerance or the difference in you know, how we might do things with our buddies versus how we might do them when we're working in a professional setting. Mm -hmm. Um, The same way that I've seen people drive really carefully with their van full of students (laughs) and have different driving habits, you know, as individuals um, personally in their real lives. And it just brings up this sort of conundrum between, you know, knowing uh, what the conservative or the, or the, more, you know, safety conscious sort of approach to things might be versus the risks that we feel comfortable taking in our, in our personal lives uh, can, can be different, you know? So it's just an interesting piece of human psychology. Uh, I'm sure you've studied or you've, you've, you've read about risk homeostasis before. Do you know that concept? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's tell the listeners about it. Yeah. So risk homeostasis is, uh, a theory. It's not proven, but there's lots of examples of this theory where we adjust our actions and our acceptance of risk depending on the kind of controls that are or are not put in place so that we always achieve the same ultimate level of risk. So for example, when they added seatbelts to cars, instead of like suddenly having a safer society, people just drove faster because they felt invincible now, (laughs) you know, because they had seatbelts. And, um, you know, I think we've started to see, you know, other more recent examples, perhaps with COVID, people feel like, oh, well, you know, people are wearing masks now, so I don't need to be as careful or whatever. You know, we can adjust our behaviors to achieve the same level of risk uh, that there was before. So I'm kind of hearing a little bit of that in some of your stories and just that idea of, you know, wanting to have a certain amount of risk tolerance um, and your sister maybe having a different idea of her risk tolerance on your behalf mm-hmm. and wanting you, <laughs> wanting you to put some additional, you know, layers of, of um, uh, protection in place, like 
a, a plan where someone knew where you were going that day, <laughs> you know, things like that. So those are just some concepts that pop out for me hearing some of your stories. Yeah, I agree. And when the dust settles, I just think that none of this can happen to me. Honestly, that's what I think, mm-hmm. which is crazy. That is really fascinating. Have you had some moments that really challenged that or tested that or started to burst burst the bubble of like that that disbelief? <laughs> yeah, just when I do when I interview people, when I when I interview people for the sharpen and these people are just like me and I'm just like these people. We're all human. We're all outdoor enthusiasts. We all like to climb or mountaineer or backcountry ski and these are all my peers and it happened to them. So it can certainly happen to me. And that sort of is what gives me the reality check every single time. That's really wonderful that you're, that you're taking that away. Um, and it's one of the great things about your show really is the chance that we all have to learn from each other's incidents and near misses without having to repeat those same experiences ourselves. I gave a talk uh, a few weeks ago to uh, an avalanche education conference And one of the key points I was making in that talk is that the difference between a really, really great day in the mountains and a really, really terrible day is often not that big of a difference as far as how close to that edge we often can be. And, you know, I really do think that, you know, reflecting after a successful trip one that we think is a successful trip can teach us a lot about why did the why did that trip go well hmm. and what are the things that we can learn from that you know really having a, a habit of debriefing not just the one out of a hundred times when there's a serious injury or an accident or a fatality you know but actually having a habit of trying to not say why didn't this trip go poorly but to ask why did it go well what did we do right what can we learn from this how close were we to one of those you know tragic trips that we can be blind to if we don't pay attention to that stuff so it sounds like you're kind of doing that in some ways like sifting some of that out for yourself by having conducted so many interviews of others but maybe we can go even more, you know, go even further with that, you know, and and, and pursue um, the learn, you know, harvest some of the learnings from those trips that on the surface just seem to go super well. But why? <laughs> what were those reasons? Why? Well, thanks for sharing all those. And uh, I know that it takes, you know, some courage and vulnerability and some honesty to to be so open and to share some of those those things that you shared. So first of all, great job. Thank you so much for doing that. And that's, I think, a very nice uh, segue into part B of the show, which is why is it so hard for people to step forward and share their lessons? So we're up into the 60th episode uh, before this episode was recorded. And I'm curious if you can just reflect a little bit on, you know, what are some of the things that make it made it hard for you to want to step forward and share your own stories? And what are some of those barriers, you know, that make it hard for people to, to be courageous and vulnerable like that? That's a really, really good question. And it's taken me 60 episodes to come up with an answer. Uh, And 
I, I personally, you know, I'm pretty shy (laughs) and I've always been scared or I don't know if scared is the word, but I guess maybe resistance. I've, I've been resistant to sharing my stories because it is tough to be vulnerable, really tough. And I have so, so, so much respect for the people that do come on my show and talk to me about their personal experience because it takes real bravery and a lot of courage to be that vulnerable because you're, these people are, these people are putting themselves out there. You know, I mean, I have about 40 to 60,000 listeners per month. Okay. With over 1 million plus listens to the show. That's a lot of people that are hearing these people's stories. So that that's one of the reasons why I started the show, because I want to I want to break down the barriers that we've created for ourselves in this outdoor industry. And I, and I want to reshape how we look at accidents in the mountains and create this sort of this safe space to talk about it so we can learn from all the mistakes that people have made. If we continue to shame and blame an armchair expert, these people's accidents, no one's going to want to come forward to share their experience, right? No, no one's everyone's going to hide in the corner and pretend it didn't happen and be embarrassed. And that's a, that's a shame. Okay. Cause we have this massive opportunity to learn from others in this community. And, and I think that we should really start lifting people up and supporting each other and growing together through each other's hardships. That that's the point of the whole show. And the reason why I haven't done it is because, well, there, I mean, there are so many episodes. I mean, I, I get so many submissions that I, it's hard for me to, to, to do them all. So there's really no room for me to talk because there's so many submissions and really it's not about me. Really. It's about you. And it's really, it's really about the interviewees because I, I want to lift them up and support them and, and help them get their story out there. Yeah. Great. Well, I do think that for the most part, that's what your show does. And, but tonight's show is about you and we're going <laughs> to, we're going to keep, we're going to keep just learning what we can from your experience now, I'd like to know a little bit more. You named some of the factors like the the, the knowledge of the, the huge listening audience and how many downloads you get. And it sounds like what you're describing there is is uh, stage fright is perhaps the wrong word, but it sounds like just a, a, an awareness of, of how out there you're putting yourself. Um, so what was can you talk a little bit more about maybe that factor and, and how that how that felt for you? I feel like I'm on this screen, this big screen, and people are staring at me. I, I get stage fright, I mm-hmm, guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's really a common fear that people have. And I was reading a, 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 I was reading an article the other day that was describing some of the most common human fears. And number two <laughs> on the list was dying. And number one was public speaking. And so what that said to me is that if, if, <laughs> oh my gosh. if someone was at a funeral, right, they would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. And I th- found that to be just really a remarkable something about human nature. But you've overcome that by hosting this podcast and, and you know, establishing a show that has such a huge audience. But somehow it felt different when it was about you. And, and yeah. you, you weren't the one asking the questions and you were the one 
you know, um, sort of being the, 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 the subject of the story. So, you know, what was, did, did you have, you know, perhaps the reason I want to dig into this a bit is because I bet a lot of people feel the same way and it might be useful for them to hear you talk through, you know, what you saw so that they feel that they're not alone. So did you imagine perhaps, you know, people talking behind your back or did you perhaps feel that as the host of this show, you have a responsibility to be a super safe person and you can't have an accident of your own or, you know what I mean? Like what, talk, talk us, talk us through a little bit of like some of the, the feelings you had around, um, you know, just that anxiety. Yeah. Well, I'm just a shy person and I'm a pretty private person. And so putting myself out there is, is nerve wracking because mm-hmm. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I, you know, I, I host this podcast and so, yeah, I, I can't possibly have any accidents, you know, because I, mm-hmm. I'm the host of the podcast. So that, that kind of resonated with me when you, when you said that for sure. Yeah. Like it's sort of a threat to your own credibility. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Who are you to host this accident podcast when you can't keep yourself out of trouble kind of thing? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But trust me, everybody, I get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think that's actually worth digging into for a second, because I think that that's really common. Uh, Hindsight is 2020, right? And it's really easy to look back at something post incident and say, you know, of course, they should have unzipped their vestibule. And of course, she should have you know, unloaded her own boots and made sure she had the map and double check that radio. And I, I wouldn't make those mistakes. You know, it's really obvious that these were the things that made that accident happen, right? And to cherry pick some pieces that in hindsight, we can create this coherent narrative for ourselves that is comforting because it helps us understand what happened. And it gives us a story, you know, that we can look back and say, these are the mistakes they made we should learn from that and we won't make those same mistakes. But I think it's usually a much more complex story than that. And we tend to only do that detailed analysis for the trips that go wrong. And again, I don't think we do enough sort of looking at and understanding um, the factors in the trips that go well and why did they go well and what can we learn from that and how close were we to you know, that tragic incident that we might just blow right past by failing to examine it. So, you know, I I think that the reason why we get so much anxiety and stage fright and fear of judgment and all that is because of how people think about the ways that accidents happen at all in this very linear, you know, um, easy to dissect, easy to make a simple narrative and blame someone for it. And it's just a, it's probably not the most useful way to look, to, to learn um, from an, from an incident or, or near miss after it happens. I don't know if any of that resonates with you. (laughs) 100%. And that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast really is, is change the way that we all look at accidents and learn from them and not judge and not blame and not shame because no, no one's going to step up and, and share if, if we're doing that to each other. Yeah. Um, and we're going to miss out on really good learning opportunities if we, if we continue to do that. And, and honestly, the first year that I was hosting these pod, this podcast, 
it would, it would, it took me so much effort to get anybody to be on the show. It was like pulling teeth, Steve. Mm-hmm. People did not want to be on the show because of those exact reasons. And now I have so many submissions. I, I, I can't, I can't produce them all. And, and I think it's because we're shifting the way that we look at accidents through this podcast, which is really special. You know, that's, it's so true what you're saying, and I'm seeing it in other places too. And I'm curious if you are, uh, there's a great article I read in powder magazine, uh, not too long ago, which was called getting beyond the emotional game of reporting an avalanche. And this, this, uh, writer, Matt Hansen shares his story of how he experienced a, an avalanche on uh, a, a relatively a day that was rated as low risk, but um, he still had a pretty surprisingly large avalanche that he experienced, and he reported it to his local avalanche center. But then he had all this like misgivings and self doubt and sort of shame and you know sort of the emotional things that you're describing where he felt like, you know, he was now in the spotlight for having had this close call and how does it reflect on him? And do people want to ski with him now? And is he going to be blamed and judged by his peers? And, you know, he courageously wrote this wonderful article that describes, you know, some of, a lot of what you're saying, how we need to get to a place of learning and openness and you know, reporting, empathy. empathy, compassion. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So say more about that. Like what are some, what's some advice you have for folks who are maybe stuck in that place where you were feeling, you know, just that, that, that anxiety, like, why would I report? Why would I do this when I can just keep that stuff to myself? Like what, what's some advice you would like people to take away that can, um, how about advice for the people, but also advice for their peers and the community itself and how to respond once that person does share their story? Be compassionate. Above all, compassion. <laughs> um, man, it, it goes along. It goes such it goes a long way. It really does. It j- just for the person who's sharing and for the person who's listening, because it can happen to you being empathetic, being, being able to put yourself in their shoes. I think that those are, are a few of the biggest, most important pieces of advice that I can give to all the listeners is just to be more compassionate with each other, be gentle with yourself, be gentle with others, because accidents happen. They do. And they happen to great people and great organizations and great programs. And so they're actually kind of normal in a way. And if we can get to a place where we can understand that we have information to learn and to harvest from these experiences, but we're never going to get it. We're never going to get it if we look back with the gift of 2020 hindsight and just pick out a few things to, you know, that, that we think went wrong and shame and blame that person and say, oh, this could this could never happen to me <laughs> because that is a pretty good mindset to ensure that you're missing something or you're, you're, you're inviting, you know, sort of a, so you're, you're enlarging your own blind spot around what we can learn from our past. And it's ego too. It's just your ego in the way. 
that's it's self-defense, right? It's it's mm-hmm. it's helpful to, in the short term to say, oh, I would never make that mistake. But it's not helpful if you actually want to not make that mistake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Can you think of a time uh, where you, you know, after a trip did uh, have a good debrief with your team or with your partners and you, you, you did some of this, what you're describing, like a compassionate forward-looking, um, learning-based approach to how that trip went? Uh, a, a lot of times, yeah. It, it's a constant struggle because sometimes when you're, you get done with the trip, people just sort of want to hit the ground running and yeah. take off or leave the parking lot or they're in a rush or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, if there's time to circle back and, and say, hey, it was really awesome when we did that micro-terrain conversation when we were ski-touring up on the side of that mountain or um, hey, it was really great when we decided to bail on that climb because we saw weather was coming in. You know, it's just a really good, really good to build that space in to debrief the the pros and the cons of what happened on a trip. That's great. Yep. And what would you really be looking for in your partners? Uh, whether you maybe you look back at some things from that trip and maybe you see it differently. You know, maybe you don't even fully agree with each other about you know, your analysis of what went right or what went wrong, but how can you be the best partner you can be to your, your teammates, even in those situations? I think having your wilderness first responder mm-hmm. is a good start. <laughs> and then, uh, I think being a really good listener and not being attached to outcomes are a couple of, of ones that are really important to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's good advice. Is there anything that you would want to do? Um, you know, you were talking a few minutes ago about wanting to find more outdoor partners and <laughs> people to have these adventures with. What would be some things that you would want to look for uh, in, in your, you know, in your outdoor partner or things that you would want them to know about you that would make the trip proactively like get on the same page about some of these kind of things or your your goals for the trip or your risk tolerance and stuff like that? Uh, well, I'm looking for a tall, dark, and handsome man that, no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, sort of the same thing. A good listener, good communicator, open, honest, not attached to outcomes, has a woofer, carries a first aid kit. Um, extra battery. Extra battery. <laughs> I'm seeing a yeah. pro- I'm seeing a profile emerge in my head. <laughs> oh, good. I t- I'm taking applications. <laughs> uh, um, also, the share share the same objective because I'm a pretty. Uh, I have a sort of a style, you know, an outdoor style. I like long, sustained alpine routes. I don't really. I've never really been sport climbing. I do trad climbing or gear climbing and. I, I like nine pitch five, seven climbs or five day hut trips. <laughs> well, now that you've put that intention out into the world, uh, my guess is that you may be surprised uh, with, a, uh, with some new applicants um, for future partners for future trips. So I'm going to manifest it. So exactly. <laughs> I think it's going to be, I think good, good things will doubtlessly come your way on that. Uh, well, we've talked about some interesting things here and let me just recap a few of the key things that kind of stood out for me, uh, that I jotted down while you were talking, Ashley, and 
You know, I really appreciated the point you made very early about humor and the importance of humor. And that maybe this is another part of your profile <laughs> for your, yeah. you know, applicants, you know, make sure you have this. And in addition to extra batteries, you know, make sure that you <laughs> have uh, extra batteries in your sense of humor. Yes, and totally. Com- communication, um, which is, goes both ways, right? Not just clearly communicating what you what the plan is or what you want and need, but then you also mentioned the importance of being an active listener and being on the same page with your partner about the, the, why are we doing this trip? You know, and I do think that one is, is important because, you know, if your partner is of the mindset that it's summit or nothing <laughs> and you're of the mindset that, you know, we just want to do what we're doing with high quality and it doesn't matter, you know, where we get today, then you're kind of, and you, if you haven't had that conversation with each other, then I think that that's a recipe for um, not being on the same page when, you know, when times get tough. So I, I think that's an important one. You also mentioned kind of just like the difference between your own risk tolerance and the kind of risk tolerance that you might see in an institutional setting or maybe in a, a group that's more or less conservative than you are. So I think that's a really useful one to talk about. And then just that complacency, that human complacency that can kind mm-hmm. of start to creep in. And it's very interesting that to me that you can still at times have this feeling of just invincibility, even after hosting all of these shows. So I'm really, it's true. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, it, that one's a little perplexing. I don't quite know what to say about that, but it's good that you, it's good that you see it and that you mm-hmm. acknowledge it. Maybe that's part of your discussion with your partners or your plan for the trip is to plan the trip in a way that knows that you have some invincibility <laughs> um, bias going on there. And what do we want to build in to deal with that? Um, you know, finally, I think just really, to me, what stands out is your your compassion and your empathy for the the, the guests on your show and, and maybe for yourself too. And the importance of being courageous creating an environment in which people can vulnerably and courageously share their their stories and their near misses and what hurt them and what scared them and maybe even you know tragic things that have happened so that others can benefit from that and i really think your show has gone such a long way towards helping the outdoor industry start to wrap their heads around being empathetic and focusing on learning and not just focusing on shaming and blaming, even in this really divisive, politically charged, like difficult time in our country right now, uh, or in the world right now. I think that your show is a really wonderful example of, um, you know, a, a better way to be and a better way to be empathetic towards each other. And um, mm. I'm wondering if you have any sort of final reflections or intentions you'd like to put out there for, for your listeners in kind of bringing this, this part of the show to a close. I, I just want to say, yeah, thanks so much, Steve, for, for uh, challenging me and pushing me outside of my own comfort zone to share a little bit about who I am and what I've been struggling with and, and really holding that space for me to explore that. And I want to tell all the listeners, thanks for listening. Play hard and be smart and be kind. 
What a wonderful note to end on. And, you know, thank you for asking me to have the honor of interviewing you for this special episode. It really was an honor. And I'm super proud of your courage and your vulnerability and your empathy for for folks and for being brave and visionary with putting together this show. And I don't know how to count the accidents that don't happen, but my I can only imagine that this show has, by talking about the incidents and accidents that have happened, you have saved many lives and you have averted many tragedies for others because of the multiplying factors of the lessons that come from this show. So we can't count the incidents that don't happen, but we can count you know, the positive um, influence and critical thinking and lessons learned and judgment and decision-making. And now maybe even the compassion and empathy too, <laughs> you know, that comes mm-hmm. from um, benefits that, that this show gives to the outdoor community. Oof. Well, now you all know a little bit more about me, the hostess and creator of the Sharp Bend podcast. And I'd like to thank Steve Smith at Experiential Consulting for interviewing me and taking the time to sit down and really make me think. Check out his website, outdoorrisk.com. Thanks to Assesso, Desert Mountain Medicine, and the American Alpine Club. To learn more about the American Alpine Club, visit AmericanAlpineClub.org. Desert Mountain Medicine is innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. Are you an avid winter backcountry enthusiast? DMM has launched a new course called Wilderness First Aid for Winter Backcountry Users. This 16-hour course focuses on prevention, assessment, and treatment of injuries and illnesses common to winter backcountry recreation and includes the wilderness medicine guidelines for the treatment of avalanche victims. This course is also offered as part of the Women's Wild Med Program. Use promo code SHARP for winter for a 10% discount on this course. To learn more and sign up, visit desertmountainmedicine.com. Please check out my new website at www.thesharpendpodcast.com. You can order t-shirts, contact me for story submissions, and donate to the show from the Patreon link off that website. Well, I really hope you like all the new changes of the Sharpen Podcast, and I hope to see you next month, February 1st, for the next episode. And as always, play hard and be smart.